You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the TK Show. I'm your host uh, for the day, TK. And today we're going to be taking a very different uh, analysis into South African politics because today we have Mr. Gundo Maswimi, who's a, what I would term a technocrat slash academic joining us. And he's from the field of civil engineering, which is not a field I think that gets too much of a say in South Africa. The topic for today, we're looking at bringing public infrastructure to South Africa's political thinking. Uh, Mr. Maswime, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, TK. Uh, thank you for hosting me. No, not a problem. If Look, for maybe a, a quick, uh, for those that don't know you, we know you're quite uh, prodigious on Twitter, especially your, you and Ms. Zilla. Your takes are quite hilarious. If you could just maybe give us an introduction into yourself and maybe walk us into how we got to this subject of you being brought here for public infrastructure. All right, uh, thanks. My uh, academic background is civil engineering. I'm a civil engineer, uh, but I I always had an interest in practicing in the public uh, sector. So for that reason, I um, determined very early on in my career that I'm going to have to um, build a profile or to study uh, public administration public policy, which is part of political science. Uh, and uh, I, that, I did that at post-grad level. I left the pub, uh, private sector uh, after just four years and went into the public sector uh, and I worked there. And that is where I started realizing that what we normally have on the design floor, uh, what we normally discuss on the design floor in our consulting spaces uh, as it pertains to government. It's not actually the case. Uh, our analysis is informed mostly by the media uh, and what we hear every day and all, all the other things that might be historical and so on. So this gave me an opportunity to do a fresh perspective of uh, the interface between what I do and uh, politics, uh, ideology and so forth. Uh, and I've since been quite uh, vocal about that, uh, uh, hence you talking about Twitter and so on, uh, to say public service is not what most people think it is, uh, uh, you know. So it's on that basis uh, that I'm here uh, to discuss the linkages between uh, infrastructure and politics. No, no, thanks for that introduction, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, but I think it also would be a bit interesting if maybe one were to ask you that I like what you say, that some, there's a disjuncture between the reality of being a public servant and what is portrayed out there. And maybe if you could just quickly just, why is that? Because you would think that, you know, the private sector in South Africa, especially engineering, is always said to be about hard numbers, you know. There's no such thing as ideology. It's supposed to be numbers. But uh, uh, your description tells me that maybe more work needs to be done on just explaining even to the private sector how the public sector works. If you could just maybe walk us through that. Okay, I'll give you a simple example. Um, <clears throat> we, as engineers, what we design is designed on a canvas that is created by town planners. So they do the layout and we put the infrastructure there. Now, you know that South Africa has got a history of spatial segregation. Uh, which also translated into segregation in terms of access to uh, infrastructure, public infrastructure. You will remember that all of that was done by professional engineers and professional town planners. It was not just politicians. Politicians carried the ideology. But the engineers and the town planners of the day, they did it so successfully that today we're actually struggling to undo it. So if you are going to say that uh, professional uh, persuasions are value-free and completely divorced uh, from politics and ideology, then I think you would already start to see uh, that it was a, we are where we are because of what was done by engineers then. What has now happened is that we, had, uh, we have a momentum coming from 1994 when we had our transition. We didn't stop um, all the engineers and say, all the engineers that worked uh, in the past, uh, we are now going to uh, get rid of all of you uh, because we are changing an ideology. We, 
continued with um, the same group of engineers. They are the ones that mentored the current crop of engineers and the mentoring happens very subconsciously. So that is why it's been very difficult to reverse um, uh, those, uh, uh, those legacies. Now, on top of that, an explanation needs to be given for the failures uh, of the uh, democratic dispensation when it comes to the provision of infrastructure. And what we see is that it's normally reduced to cadre deployment, it's reduced to incompetence, it is reduced to corruption. Those three things exist uh, in mm. the public sector and the private sector. And in fact, the two sectors are equally enablers, yes. But I long for a day where those three things will no longer be a factor in uh, the in the South African uh, public uh, sector, because on that day we'll then realize that our problems are, were not actually uh, those were not the major problems. There are other fundamental problems. It's just those three are what the media has presented uh, very consistently, and they they actually absolve. Uh, those that would have been sympathetic to the old regime to feel that, uh, you know, we gave them the country uh, and, and they, they made it up for themselves. So that is a very important, uh, I'm, I know I'm making a very bold uh, statement, mm. uh, but I was converted when I joined the uh, public sector. Uh, I worked for the, 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 the best organizations. I worked for the worst organizations. And I realized that there's actually a more, um, I don't know, a scientific explanation to what actually happens in South Africa, in the South African government. No, 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 I think I, I do like that explanation, Mr. Kondan. We'll explore it a bit more. Uh, I do like what you say that what we're playing with here is, or what we're supposed to be addressing is, is legacy. I think there's one book I remember reading, The Last Africana Leaders, where they speak about how the townships were designed, that if you look at most townships in South Africa, there's only one major road. That was not an accident. It was so that the analysis could come in and leave very quickly. So I find that very interesting. But Mr. Gundo, maybe a pushback would also be, we've, we've had the RDP, we've had GEAR, we've had ASGISA, Accelerated Shared Growth Initiative. We've had the new growth path. We have the Industrial uh, Policy Action Plan and uh, we also have the National Development Plan. And I think in your field, there's a National Infrastructure Plan of uh, 2012. Uh, so we have these policies. Are you also saying that maybe they also don't get to, like what you say, they don't quite have a good sectoral understanding of their history. And if that's the case, how do we change that thinking so that public infrastructure is aware of the legacies and also we actually put policies in place that advance and actually tear down uh, the legacies of apartheid and colonialism in, in infrastructure? Yeah, um, the... The, all the plans that you have uh, alluded to um, are very comprehensive uh, plans that were meant to address the issue of uh, access to infrastructure. And it was hoped that in the process, unemployment and poverty will also be uh, addressed by the, the, uh, by, by the same interventions. Uh, but <clears throat> what you then realize uh, is that most of those plans, the earlier ones as GISA, um, RDP, and so on, the input uh, that comes through when you look at them is uh, what would have come mostly from uh, international organizations, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions. They, those were the real technocrats then, and I think it has to be understood in context uh, because in 1994, the only people who were from within the, the, the ANC that were engineers. Um, I only know Trevor Fowler, uh, who became mayor of Johannesburg. Uh, I am aware that there was a certain Mr. Corbett, who is now working for maybe Habitat Humanity or, or uh, uh, something like that. Uh, he, he became the first director general of um, housing. Uh, and then thirdly, there was Sakima Kozomo, and Mr. Corbett is not an engineer. They, I have to qualify that. Okay. There was Sakima Kozomo who became the first director general of Transnet. Now, those were probably the most 
capable uh, people in terms of uh, designing the infrastructure uh, policy going forward. And indeed, through their work and the work of public works uh, department then, uh, the country was able to come with some uh, very, very first world uh, in a way and quite advanced and comprehensive um, uh, policy papers like the 1997 uh, uh, Green Paper on the creating an enabling environment for the growth and development of the construction sector and so on. If you look at the National Development Plan today and uh, NIP, the National Infrastructure Plan uh, 2012, uh, which is uh, projecting to, uh, to, to have been uh, fulfilled by 2050, uh, uh, its horizon in the year 2050, you will realize that the same problems and challenges they raised then are the same problems they are raising now. And they are not raising them from a point of view of saying um, we have done a lot. Uh, not really. Uh, it's, they are not raising from their point. Of view. The, the issues are still there. The issues of in a very um, intricate legislative framework, which is sometimes contradictory uh, if it's not tedious. They are still there. So um, not to take from the government, they have taken access to water from 62% in 1994 to about 95, 96% today. They have taken access to electricity from 34% in 1994 to almost 90%, 91% today. And they've built more than 3 million houses, you know, and the road infrastructure as well, railway infrastructure, which uh, the pro main problem is maintenance, but we have got, uh, I'm just giving an example with railway infrastructure. South Africa's GDP uh, is 2%, it's 0.4% uh, of the world GDP. Mm. But our rail network, uh, if we just take just the length of it, it's 2% of the world rail uh, network. So we've got a very comprehensive rail network. Our road infrastructure network is as extensive as that of France. Uh, mm. So in many ways, a lot has been done um, since 1994 in terms of infrastructure and so on. But what has been problematic with uh, our national plans has been the fact that they have not addressed inequality per se. And if for yeah, that reason, yeah. they don't get the buy-in from the trade unions and the, the and so on. That should be the problem that we should be ad addressing. And I think they call it structural issues in economics. That's true. I think that's very true. But I, I like that you've given an overview of what engineering services look like. But maybe just your understanding of when we say public infrastructure, are we only speaking about housing, roads, or is there a larger... Uh, something larger which you can attach to how do you understand public infrastructure yeah well it is best that uh, it is best explained uh, uh, with examples but it, yeah. it really refers to all infrastructure units that are for public use uh, from water sanitation roads uh, railway electricity uh, you know uh, housing you know, waste management, all those things that are for communal use uh, in a way, we, you know, or are, yeah, maybe communal is not appropriate for housing because you build a house for, a, uh, for one person. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but that is what we refer to when we say public infrastructure, access to, uh, to broadband and so on. So when we say public infrastructure, that's what we are looking uh, at. And I think the government has done ex extremely well. I, there was a time where uh, the former president, then when he was still president, was saying that it would be difficult to find examples across the world uh, where that much uh, access was created for so many people over such a short period of time. So we have actually provided infrastructure at a rate that some of the developmental states that we look up to uh, they would really look at us and say, if we have not matched them, we have really given them a serious challenge. 
so from that front, it's perspective that needs uh, to be managed because when infrastructure is provided, the reporting is not on it, it's on the corruption that, that might have happened uh, when it was being provided. Well, I think you, you put it, I like the, the issue saying it's about perspective and context, but if I had to say, you, you'll let me know if I'm going in the wrong direction here, that what you've described, a lot of the achievements can be classified as your basic infrastructure, right? Obviously, electricity is more complex uh, and now that we have to think about broadband. But I, I want you to walk me through somebody who comes from, like, let's say, an Everton or, or a Vembe district in Limpopo, right? Who, who says that, look, Mr. Maswime, fair enough. I think you're, you're right in what you're saying. No, because I think that it can never be a debate that today is better than years ago, that that can never be a, a starting point. I don't, I don't think anyone can really make that, a, that argument. But the question needs to be, how do you move to post basic infrastructure to the type of infrastructure that builds the new economy where someone from Vembe or someone from Everton and Gauteng can now start to see themselves? We call it uh, structural inequality issues. How do we get that type of engineering? Because I think you would agree with me, when people uh, crow, or when people praise the Chinese, or even praise the Singapore government, what they're really speaking about is their ability to get rural, their version of townships into their formal economy and creating a bridge such that you can have a speed train that takes them back home as opposed to only having a speed train well, only in Gauteng taking you to the airport. How, what would you say to that assessment then? Yes, that's, a, that's an, an important question. Look, when it comes to planning, uh, South Africa is uh, uh, and, and policy uh, drafting. We, we, we can match any country in the world. So we have taken the Chinese model uh, to upgrade or to, uh, to build new industries, uh, new frontiers for, uh, or new cities. And this is, this is what you, you hear about all the time, special economic zones, special economic zones. That was taken as it is uh, from China with very little uh, adjustment. It is the realization that if you go into an area, you identify a comparative advantage that area has in terms of maybe mineral resources or um, being a strategic uh, corridor or a hub uh, for industrial development or uh, you know, transport uh, nodes and so on. You can actually build a town they invest in that town plan it properly in such a way that the people who live uh, in the surrounds uh, were, are now able to gain access to the formal economy so a special economic zone like the one in bembe where you've given an example of bembe there's a special economic zone between musina and Lutrichard, which has been planned for the last 10 or uh, also, yes. Unfortunately, it has not really come off the ground uh, yet. So uh, the, the thinking is already there. Government's already uh, thinking in the right direction. Uh, it's just our ability to implement things fast and efficiently and effectively. That is, uh, I think that is where we tend to be, to be Amsterdam. There are other special economic uh, zones that have taken off the ground uh, in Eastern Cape and so on. There's one in the valley. You made an example with Everton. So the problem we have now is if you are going to see a truck driving into Everton, you can be 100% sure that it is uh, full. It's carrying something. But if you see a truck driving out of Everton, you can be assured that that truck is empty. So that mm -hmm. is why now how things talking about the township economy. The townships, uh, as they were planned, uh, prayer uh, in, the, in the 40s, they have continued to be dormitories for a workforce where people wake up and go and work in town. They are not self-sustaining. Um, the economy of the township has, has not, attention has not really been, uh, been paid to that uh, economy. Gauteng is the only one that seems to be very uh, aggressive at least at rhetorical level, uh, you know, and maybe hopefully some things will start uh, taking on, on the ground. 
Uh, hence, people are even attacking malls because they are seeing malls as institutions that take from them. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say uh, job creation and so on. But there's a study that was done in the VAL that indicated that for every one rent that somebody who stays uh, in the townships of Smuging and so on and the, and the surrounding townships, for every one rent they get, um, they are going to spend 20 cents on transport, uh, between 15 and 20 cents on transport. And only like uh, 30 cents of that money will be spent there. The rest is going to be uh, spent in Ferenaheim, Van der Bell Park or Johannesburg or elsewhere. So those, that is what needs to start changing. If we're talking about uh, uh, addressing inequality, we need to start uh, having people stay where they work or having work come to where they stay. Mm. So that's, that, is, that, is, that will be a very important um, uh, uh, step in the right direction. No, no, no. Thank you for that. I, I think I'll just quickly go through these numbers and then you'll let me know what has changed. Because Treasury says between 1998 and 1999 to 2018, 2019, the public sector spent close to $3.2 uh, I repeat that, a trillion on, inf on infrastructure. And obviously expenditure increased during those times, but they've also said there's been a decline. And I think as you, I think even you as, an, as a civil engineer would admit that that's due to the, if the economy is not doing well, infrastructure doesn't do well. So, so I think the question is, walk me through what the next 10 years, if, if we were to say, listen, what are the major things we should really invest in in public infrastructure such that people who live in places like both them, but people that live in places like, or even Rustenburg, because if, if you take away their minds, it's, it's a very dire situation. Maybe my gang is a better example or people that live in my area in the Val. How, what type of public infrastructure spending or plans need to be in place? And what would you change? Two or three critical things you would change that really says we're moving at pace, not just that we're gonna plan for planning sake. Yeah. Okay, so we, we need to distinguish between the different uh, typologies. If we are dealing with a place like Bembe, which is by and large uh, uh, rural, we first need to identify what kind of industries uh, would be uh, appropriate would, or would thrive in an environment like that. And I can already see, uh, for example, if we say um, Bembe, uh, for example, has got a lot of, um, um, I mean, the very fertile land. They, they produce a lot of fruits and vegetables and so on with a capacity to supply probably the whole local thing if, if, if it's mechanized and it's done properly. If government decides uh, that we are earmarking this area of the uh, Vubu area where most of all these uh, fruits and uh, produce come from. Uh, so we're earmarking this area. We are identifying all strategic pieces of land. We are going to systematically uh, develop this area in such a way that if we are investing on a road, it must be in line with that vision, uh, that this is the road that will be used to, to transport the goods that will be produced from this area and so on. Then go even to the investor of Venda and say, we are going to, uh, to fund the Department of uh, Agriculture to, pro to train. And even the FET colleges that are there, yeah. uh, there are machines that are used in farms and so on. So mechanical engineering is strengthened and it's, it's targeted. Then we become systematic from every uh, uh, industry, from uh, like from uh, every area of intervention that it is seen that we are now working towards building an agricultural uh, hub. Then we look at the secondary uh, industry now, which is uh, the processing uh, industry. We, then we can do agri-processing and so on and so. If you do that, mm -hmm. there will not be a need for all the people in Bembe to go and work in Pretoria, uh, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, then it will, it will not be, uh, you find that the area itself is, is self-sustaining and you will then have trucks leaving Bembe going uh, to the cities uh, to transport all these goods. And in fact, they can easily go international uh, in, 
because they, they have got macadamia nuts, they've got avocados, they've got uh, everything. But if you look at the main market there in Chakuma, it's still a very much makeshift structure. Just, mm. to, just for the government to say, we have identified this market, it produces, uh, uh, it, it, it makes more than a million rands every month. We are going to build a structure and enhance it so that it becomes convenient uh, for, uh, for storage uh, and, you know, and just go architectural about it uh, because it's a lot of tourists pass by and so on. It's, those are the type of systematic interventions that we, uh, we need to have. And in the township, it's different. Uh, the townships, uh, there are other industries like the steel industry in the valley, which, uh, which, which has been uh, badly decimated over the last uh, 10 years. In part because even though we profess to want to, to aspire to be a developmental state, Developmental states start with a certain level of protectionism. You protect your own industry, invest in them until they reach a certain competitive level, then you can uh, open it, uh, it up. So because of the cheap Chinese uh, imports of steel and so on, the, the, our steel industry was decimated 20, from 20, 2008. Uh, things started really going down and it hit the municipality very badly. Uh, they <coughs> lost revenue very badly, but in the news, the municipality is branded as corrupt uh, when it's failing to produce uh, services. All the other things must not count. It, it mm. must come corruption. Yeah. So it's those type of uh, of things that uh, we need to really start thinking about. No, no, I think, Mr. Gund, I think you, you do say an important point, especially as, as it points to the media, that, look, like I like what you say, that, listen, whether it's corruption or whichever, because I, I think we can still have a debate about cater deployment, which we'll have later on. The, the key issue is you need to give a, a holistic view of the problem uh, rather than just sticking to one thing. So I do, I do like that point, which you're saying. And maybe it brings me to the issue of just what you said, your interactions with public policy and vis-a-vis -vis engineering. Now, in engineering, my reasons, and I think there's a reason why civil engineering is always considered the one might say the, the, the king of engineering because it, it, it's linkages to the economy and also the, the logical way it works. Because if I'm not mistaken, the Chinese, the, I think the 90s, because the, they normally have these 10-year plans, that identified that, listen, we need to invest X amount of money to produce about 1,000 or 10,000 engineers a year. That's why you see that the early leadership of the Chinese were civil engineers by and large. But what they did very well, and I, and I want you maybe to speak to this in the relation to public policy, is because people always assume the Chinese model is about perfection. But when you speak to their policymakers, they tell you it's about experimentation, and then you fix the problem, which is very much how civils approach the problems, which is to say, what is the quickest solution to it? And what, what, what risk are we willing to take to get to the end result? And if we find that we're getting to the end result, how do we fix it going backwards? So do you think maybe there's a role for public, let's say civil or engineering type of thinking in South African public policy thinking? There seems to be a disjuncture for me because it seems as though we've taken the legal route and you know the law is always about perfection. But when you tell them, but that's not the reality, the constitutional people say, no, but perfection. And then we get stuck in perfection. So just your thinking on how do we get more civil engineering type of thinking into public policy and not do away, but let's say minimize these constitutional law people in public policy. Yeah, no, you're there. You're you're on the ball, uh, TK. Because if you if you think about it, the uh, if you read through the South African legislation as it uh, applies to the development of public infrastructure, you don't go to uh, you won't read three pages before you realize it was written by legal and financial uh, minds. It's about financial prudence uh, and it's about uh, uh, preventing corruption uh, and then all of that covered in accountability. It's not so much about service delivery. Service delivery is only in the constitution. Uh, the constitution will say that uh, the government will ex establish municipalities that will be developmental in their nature and so on. Uh, it stays there. But when it comes down 
you have the structures act which just looks at the structures uh, the like for in, in a in local government and i prefer local government because that's really where things uh, happen the national and provincial is the top up uh, then if you look at municipal finance management act that is where infrastructure is is governed and it's actually called finance uh, that act in fact in local government there is no legislation that pertains to infrastructure uh, directly everything is either municipal finance a uh, preferential procurement uh, a, a framework uh, act uh, you know it's at that level we don't have a dedicated legislation that deals with municipal infrastructure and why is is that the case the reason as i said earlier is that at the time that most of these were created the the anc didn't have engineers um and there's historical reasons uh, for that the first vc of uj uh, dr um, uh, John Dilange, JP Dilange, who, who was the chairperson of the broader bond. It, he was commissioned to do a study in the 80s, uh, where they were determining which skills will be needed for, for a South African economy that might be crippled by uh, sanctions and so on. Uh, and the critical skills were engineering, civil engineering. And how do you create those skills? They said it will need for universities to open up to take students from other races. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it will also determine that if that happens, by year 2000, South Africa will have the same number of white engineers as it's got engineers of other races. But that will, so that will solve the problem significantly. The country couldn't accept that then. So it remained closed. What they did was they acceded to an agreement that universities can take uh, a certain number of students of color, um, and they they and they they would then say, unlike before, you don't apply to the government, uh, and then apply to the university if you are going to a traditional white university. Those were the universities where engineering could be studied. Mm. So this thing, this thing worked completely against the ANC because they came in. And they didn't have people who studied the thing. Those that have, have studied it, that they could have uh, trusted. The first generation of um, uh, uh, engineers that the ANC probably would have considered, like Truman Gobas, uh, Matlodi, they could they finished their degrees, but could not work uh, with in engineering white engineering firms. They were afraid they won't get. Uh, government tenders. So they, they send them to their partners uh, overseas. They were coming from the UK as well. So they didn't really understand the context of South African uh, uh, engineering. So we have that gap between engineering policy uh, making and uh, the policies that we have that come from finance uh, and, uh, and law. And for that reason, there are clashes that you see from time to time as an engineer in public service, you can see that if there was an engineer really, this clause should not have uh, been there. For example, I can't wait for another six months. They re-advertise, uh, you know, reconstitute three bid committees, uh, you know, when, when a contractor has failed to execute a road construction project. Because mm -hmm. I've got a road that is half done. And when it's half done, it's exposed to the weather. When it rains, those layers are being washed off. And by the time I finish that six months process, the road is not what it was when I started the process. And when the auditor general comes, he will say, but this road was budgeted for 10 million. You have now spent 15 or 20 million. They, you know, they, they don't take any explanation that the layer was wiped off while we are following procedure. And if you are too fast, you bring in another contractor. It's called an authorized uh, expenditure as well. Uh, and, and when it goes to the media, it's, 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 it's corruption. <laughs> when it goes to the media, it's corruption. So there are those stacking um, uh, conflicts uh, in, our, um, in our legislative processes where a supply chain person is sitting in a bid committee uh, with a law person 
uh, an internal auditor, uh, you know, and a COO, whatever profession they come from, and they, they are hardly ever engineers. Then mm. this one engineer who's trying to explain, you cannot score this one like this because a sewer pipe is not the same as a, as a, as a water pipeline that is a, has cathodic protection and is flowing under pressure. For them, a pipe is a pipe. You dig, you lay the pipe, you, come <laughs> out, you know. So we, we've got all those things, um, but we need we need to start looking at who must be uh, sitting there because procurement, for example, is part of engineering practice. Mm. But now in our legislation, it's a supply chain function. The engineer is trained to from conception to design. Once he has designed, he must now procure. He is trained to know what to look at in a company that would increase the chances of that company executing the work properly. But our legislation twists that part and say, okay, you can do everything, but we'll pull procurement out of uh, the engineer to be done by everyone else. Uh, and then everyone else does that, brings the complete opposite of what is needed. When the project collapses, the engineer is blamed. So, so it also, so the other problem of that disjuncture between uh, our policy and uh, so on is that the, the engineers are now even reluctant to work for government. And what does the government do? Positions that engineers must also do, they will take technicians, they will take technologists because they are, they, we are all trained differently. We were not mm -hmm. supposed to be in the same things. Like in a hospital, you have a doctor, you have a physiotherapist, you have got a dietitian, you have got all those are built, the built environment skills. Uh, you have an engineer, you have a quantity surveyor, you have a technician, a technologist, and so on. Uh, those, they are supposed to help each other. But now in our case, if you go across the municipalities, you will be surprised uh, how many are just uh, uh, run with just technologists uh, and technicians. Uh, which also brings me to the case of, sometimes you hear there's Cuban engineers, which, uh, yeah, please explain that. Uh, I think there's this common South African saying, please balance me for, with that one. Uh, what, do, what does it mean to have Cuban engineers understanding their system? Like you say, every system is different per country, but just balance me on that one, please. Uh, look, uh, TK, the truth is that uh, engineering uh, is a very universal skill in the sense that um, a, as an engineer, I should be able to stand up and go and design a bridge in the US. Uh, if I know the uh, type of soil, uh, the geotechnical report on the conditions, I should be able to do it anywhere. So for that reason, there are certain peculiar issues where uh, countries have brought engineers from outside and not just engineers, even surveyors. South Africa is one of such countries. If you go to Uha right now, you will be shocked at just the sheer number of French engineers that work there. Because when the thing was built during sanctions, France was the only country that really didn't care uh, if anything they needed to support the apartheid system and they wanted it to survive. So they sent uh, more than a thousand engineers. We have recruited engineers from Germany and elsewhere in Europe uh, in large numbers. Uh, when Randwater was uh, running out of uh, skilled professionals, um, they went US, UK, everywhere. Uh, engineers were recruited. South African um, telecommunications and the po uh, postal services uh, somewhere in the 70s, even uh, we even had offices in uh, eight offices in different parts of Europe that were recruiting engineers from there, uh, you know. Now you would say this, that was the previous government, but I can tell you that um, even after 1994, we have recruited engineers from Germany to help at ESCOM. Um, when we transitioned from the normal coordinate system, uh, which was called Longitude 31, uh, to the current one that is uh, interfacing with satellites, we brought in French and American uh, engineering surveyors to help us. They were working with the surveyor uh, general. So it's very common for countries to build, bring engineers from elsewhere 
pay, but what you need to select is what kind of skill uh, do they do they bring? So with the Cuban engineers, there is there is a thinking uh, amongst many South Africans uh, that they are doing work that any any engineer anywhere can do. I have worked with Cuban uh, engineers; they were recruited in KZN um, in the early two thousand in their numbers as well. So it's not even a new thing. Mm. And they did an absolute fantastic job. Those guys are not trained in the use of software the way we train our engineers. They work from basic principles. Uh, so they are very suited for very rural areas. Um, you know, they, they have that ability to, to improvise and they were training local engineers there and so on. So I saw that uh, and I saw, I felt a lot of people are saying, uh, the, the real uproar came from professional organizations that felt that their consultants should have been the ones doing the work. It didn't come so much from people who are saying, we have a lot of engineers that are unemployed sitting at home. Uh, really, this country has a shortage of uh, engineers. Most of the engineers that will be unemployed and sitting at home, it's either they are retired or they are freshly graduated from uh, college. There isn't a lot of engineers who've been retrenched uh, from the work who are sitting uh, at home. And even those that are there, they are frictionally unemployed. There are people who would transition from uh, one job uh, to another. I, I think we overreacted uh, with the uh, deployment of uh, uh, Cuban uh, engineers uh, that I think the context was um, yeah, I think we I think we really overreacted. But this is the challenge. The Minister of uh, Water and Sanitation, uh, which was still with Human Settlements then, uh, Minister Sisulu, she had an ultimatum from the Human Rights Commission about the spillage and the contamination of the river system. She had an ultimatum from the Human Rights Commission to act. Um, and that was like, I think two years ago uh, yeah. when, when that report uh, came out for the first time. She had to wait for the procurement system throughout that time, that two year period. Remember our legislation doesn't allow politicians to participate in anything uh, procurement, otherwise it's called corruption immediately. Mm. So she had to sit and wait in the flanges. Even when you, when you prevail on your administration and say act uh, quickly, they can say it's undue pressure. Mm -hmm. And we have seen that with the Patricia Delil's uh, department where mm -hmm. uh, the director general said we are being pressured uh, unduly and so on. And when it comes out, even one MEC, I think for sports in uh, Gauteng, uh, who was saying, make sure there are combi courts there uh, before this month and people were saying she's targeting elections and so on. So politicians have got that challenge. Then they have to look at all avenues. And in, the, in her case, she realized that because of the standing agreement we have with Cuba, she could easily pull uh, that resource to help her while the department is organizing uh, itself. And when she acted on it, there was this uproar. So you can realize sometimes you will find that you are, uh, you've got all these things. However, the main issue that I think the South African engineering community has not been able to do that they should have done. There are agreements, so Washington uh, Accord, uh, which uh, about 40, 41 countries came together and say, if you're an engineer in this country, you can work in this country as well. They evaluated mm -hmm. their programs and so on. Uh, and then there's another um, um, Canadian one, uh, another accord for technicians and technologists, the separate uh, accord. So there's a question of whether these Cubans are engineers, technicians or technologists, because uh, the new government came in and never bothered to think that they are going to need engineers maybe from Cuba, from India, from all those countries, uh, China and so on. They, and then made, they, there is no agreement that makes it possible. So the engineering council had not uh, certified or accredited engineers coming from Cuba. So that also becomes an issue that they are now practicing uh, uh, illegally. 
uh, but they can practice. They just cannot put their signatures on the designs. A certified uh, a professional engineer uh, has to put a signature on it. So that's the other thing to think about. Just on that though, Mr. Good, I think as we head towards the, the closure is looking at schools of engineering in South Africa, the big ones, obviously, do you think enough change has been made such that uh, we can say, look, we are now seeing more African, Khalids, Indians uh, coming through into engineering services and becoming fully qualified engineers and getting their, their PR engines and the like? Or do you still think that that's the fact that it's still controlled or let me put, it's still influenced by maybe past the past regime. And maybe like you said, this is where the problem comes in that the government is not fully trusting of the look of certain engineers or, or, the, or, the, or maybe it's not trusting because of the history of the country. Where are we standing on the production of, you know, the, the next generation of, uh, of civil engineers for government to tap into and also for them to also start influencing public policy? Um. If you have, I have been in the public sector for about 15 years, and I was talking recently uh, with uh, some of my colleagues in UCT, uh, saying, how come have I met, uh, I only remembered one uh, engineer from UCT, um, that actually, actually two that I met in the public sector. Um, in 15 years, uh, I know there's more than two, but overwhelmingly, uh, I have met technicians, technologists, uh, and if it's engineers, I've seen a lot of UKZN. Um, I have seen quite a bit of uh, uh, vets, but I have not met anyone from Stellenbosch, uh, for example. Uh, oh, one, I've met one from Stellenbosch. So <clears throat> what I think has been happening is that a lot of engineers come from university with very little appreciation of the public sector uh, space. Uh, most of them are sponsored by the big companies. They go and work there. And when they work uh, for these big companies, whether they are construction or consulting firms, because the companies are big, they are given very specific tasks and they grow in that space uh, and they only have a, a limited number of skills. And then much later, when they are much older, they have become senior enough in the company to go <clears throat> and meet with the client. That is where they, I would have seen them, uh, you know. But the ones that are coming from Magosutu Technicon, Valley University of Technology, TUT, and so on, they are not sponsored by the big companies. They go and work for the smaller companies. And in three years' time, the, the smaller companies, they, they take any job that comes. Uh, so, and the same engineer is doing, next thing is jumping, is doing a road, is doing water, is doing this. And the owner says, hey, today I'm meeting this client. Uh, come with me because you did the design. So they, they, even though they might not be as technically astute, um, you know, a, a, also from their training, but they get exposed very quickly. Mm. Yeah, and then before you know it, when they leave, they form their own company. And uh, who do they call in the um, design room as the company grows? The engineers from uh, UCT and so on. Uh, you know, so, so there is that happening. But what the other thing is that uh, universities are channels that they are like uh, conveyor belts uh, or as we assembly lines. You are going to produce an engineer, yes, but with a certain worldview. So I've seen that that worldview, if the universities, uh, some of the traditionally white universities do not prevail on it, uh, because you're a lecturer, you are constantly telling students about the how inept government is. Uh, uh, you know, for, for for that four or five years that this, the student is studying engineering, and you expect that when they come out, they will go and work for the government. No, they won't work for the government. In fact, most of them <clears throat> finish and go and work overseas. Um, you know, there is a, quite a significant number of engineers that finish 
and go and work overseas. So it's only now where our programs are now shifting. So say, let's look at um, <clears throat> municipal engineering. Uh, you know, let's infuse that into the curriculum. Let's look at public sector engineering, the stakeholder management, and so on, so that they start and then we'll give them practical experience uh, on their verb work. Let them go and sit in a municipality observe uh, or the municipal in, uh, uh, infrastructure support agency, MISA. Let them go and work there. Those interactions are opening students to new possibilities that actually we have got a very competitive, uh, competitive uh, state. They were even when they go there, they are learning because <clears throat> our engineers, uh, come riding very high horses that with a lot of confidence uh, that I can design a bridge through the, <laughs> through the harbor and I can do all sorts of exploits, uh, you know. So we have that challenge uh, that uh, we are not producing engineers with the right social conscience and we are only starting to turn that around now. I like the engineers with the social conscience. Mr. Gunda, as we wrap up now, I call this section, what should we look out for? which is what should we expect from you in the coming few years? I know you are now, you're still doing consulting, but you are now a, an academic. And you know, what should we look out for from you? I mean, if you can tell our listeners and our viewership, what should we look out for from Mr. Gundo Maswime? What's next for you? Ah, I didn't think this was going to get personal, uh, TK. But <laughs> <laughs> because it's not easy to talk about yourself, but my focus right now is on the science of implementation of infrastructure projects. So um, that is what is going to be preoccupy me for the next three years. And when it pertains to projects that are done in the public sector, uh, that as an engineer, you now are starting to, to look at the politics administration interface. Uh, how do you navigate that? Secondly, while all these government programs that uh, uh, we have come up with, SIGDIM uh, and uh, toolkits and uh, so on, why have they not made the kind of impact that they have made? So, so now engineers must now also pay attention to organizational dynamics. So that's the research that I'm doing. Implementation science, Dissemination science, uh, which is about once you have conceived these programs, uh, like labor-intensive construction, how do you um, roll them out properly? Uh, because we have got great, fantastic programs. We have got great administrators, great engineers, but the fuse uh, is like the cords are not joining. So my research in the next three years would focus um, uh, almost entirely on that co that connection, uh, and uh, with a specific emphasis on municipal infrastructure. So that is what I'll be doing uh, uh, over the next three years. Uh, <laughs> no, thanks, 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 uh, Mr. Maswime from the University of Cape Town, uh, civil engineer, former. Do, do you ever stop being a civil servant, or you just park it for now? Ah uh, no! Once a, a civic, civil servant, always a civil servant. <laughs> yes, and I think most important, like you said, an engineer with with a soul and a conscience uh, for the Republic of South Africa, Mr. Masuima. Thank you so much, and I'm hoping to host you again because I think I did like the interface between public policy, the economy, which you which you touched on, and I think it's something we should revisit on this show. And I'm hoping you'll come back again. Thank you, TK, uh, and thank you for hosting me, man. Thank you. No, no. Anytime, Mr. Masuime. Sure.